0: Once came another man. style of talk. Go
1: ahead.
0: I'll be honest. I, I played
1: a very high standard. A young, a superstar. Give some lessons.
2: Determination.
1: When you say best. That's hard to
2: define.
0: Competition was extremely.
2: Welcome to the chess underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, I and wish theoretical top top in the world were here. Felt B down in play. My style.
1: I walk up my sensing my style and skills. I only think so. From a distance, that's a
2: zero day. Oh nice. Generating information attack. Alright, welcome back to the chess underground. I am here with National Master Senior T D. And four-time Iowa champion, Tim McEntee, who I will let introduce himself.
0: Okay. Thanks for having me. Um, Ten years ago, I retired as an actuary, so my background is actuarial work and mathematics. Um, I basically retired, so I could do a variety of other activities, which I do volunteer work. I help out uh, various chess clubs in a variety of ways, and always looking for the new opportunities. Last year, I signed up to be uh, tournament director for national events and was scheduled to go in in April until COVID hit. So still waiting my first assignment.
2: (laughs) We'll get you in. That's the life story. I, I was an actuary. Now I do other stuff, and I'm waiting to work a national event. <laughs> Very good. You got it. All right. I was hoping we'd get something in there about our epic soccer games, uh, but, but oh, you so, play so, so Well,
0: see, the problem is I don't play soccer anymore, and COVID shut down all my uh, activities with
1: soccer. Oh. I'm a
0: big fan. I actually am um, big fan of the PDL or whatever they call themselves now. So we have the Des Moines Menace here. Right. And as you know, Peoria just had a team entered in, but they didn't play this year because of COVID. Right. So I'm looking forward to next year. Hopefully they play next year. We can have a rivalry match between the two cities.
2: Yeah. And I know the the Bradley soccer team brings you to Peoria for chess tournaments, too. And uh, we even used to have a three-on-three soccer team that we, that we named the chess players because I think our average rating... <laughs> of the soccer team was something like 1,800. I mean, it was pretty good for a soccer team. And everybody was rated. We didn't have, like, unrateds or anything.
0: Yeah, we no, our average rating was closer to 2,100.
2: Yeah, you know, you're probably right.
0: You, me, B- Boutros? Yeah. And then pick a fourth board. I mean, yeah, we could have competed for a U.S. amateur team with our
2: soccer team. So, so, Tim, I understand you, you were mentioning before we started recording that you are very close to reaching really a quite impressive milestone.
0: Yes. In Mar- or February of next year, will mark my 40th anniversary of playing in USCF-rated events.
2: I can imagine they've changed quite a bit in those, in those 40 years.
0: Um, in the olden days, we had the analog clock. Now we have digital. But the big change is in the analog clocks, you had to reset them, and then usually there would be multiple time controls. So you would have, like, uh, you have to make your thir- first 30 moves in an hour, and then you would have 30 minutes added on to your clock to play the rest of your game. And then in the 90s, they went away from that to just primarily sudden death time controls, And then that was when they started adding the time delays on and then the increments got added on. And now almost all tournaments are sudden death time controls, either with the delay or an increment associated with it. because the digitals can handle those things. The analog clocks cannot.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think to like the modern player today the thought of a tournament director coming over and twisting the back of their clock to add 30 minutes is like almost absurd, right? Like you would, you would never see that.
0: But that's, that's the funny part is yeah. A director had to be around, you know, or the two players, you know, if they knew each other and they were comfortable, they would do it themselves, but invariably one of them would get it wrong. So then you would have the director come over here, try to figure out, okay, what did you do, you know, and have to adjust the clocks accordingly. So that's, I mean, and, you know, again, the game itself hasn't changed, but the the, uh, the actual tournament format has changed considerably. Sure. Based on that, and then obviously the the other big thing is the, the computers. And I tell people there's a huge difference between before and after computers, is the way I explain it. Because before computers, you know, you did all your analysis
2: on your own. Right. Yeah. Was, oh, go ahead. No, I, there's a reason those those openings are named after people. <laughs> you know, it's not right. it's not the Rubka variation of the Sicilian, it's the Neidorf.
0: Yeah, th- those people spent time on it and studied it and understood it, whereas today, you know, you just press a button and it tells you, oh, yeah, that that's, that's good, that's bad. Oh, you play this, you do that. And it's like, oh, then it's just becoming a memorization game versus an understanding game.
2: You know, one of the interesting things about that, um, since we're on the topic, is I'm fascinated to watch all of these top-level round robins, which I know you've been kind of tuning into as well. The amount of openings that are now considered, like, just playable and totally fine, you know? Um, for It seems like for such a long time, even into, like, the early 2000s, I would say, there was just, like, a canon of openings which were respected, you know? considered to be, quote-unquote, legitimate openings. Um, And now, with this massive uh, exponential increase in the strength of computers from, let's say, like 2002 to now, um, it has opened the door on a lot of the openings that were previously considered dubious or maybe even unplayable.
0: Um, I have a slightly different twist on that. And my twist is the, in the 90s, people were working towards what I would call the perfect game. Okay. So if the computer said this was the best move, you played it. Right. And so all of a sudden, everybody had these computers operating, and they said, well, that's the best move. We have to play it. So in the mid-'90s, we are getting all these draws because people were just playing the computer moves because, hey, that's the best move. Why would I play something different? Right. And then we had Topolov come along, and obviously, Carlson carried it to the nth degree of saying, well, this may not be the best move, but my opponent has to figure out a labyrinth of moves to get to the quote, best position. Sure. I'm going to take that chance. Right. And so he would sack exchanges that no one even considered. And he would win because he was comfortable with those p- resulting positions, whereas his opponents were going, but that's not computer best. What, what What's going on here? Right. And, and I think that's where, again, the contribution of Carlson has been huge of saying, look, yes, there is computer best moves. Yes. If you just want to play that, you'll do, you know, quote, win. But you're missing the beauty of chess.
1: Sure. <laughs> Yeah.
0: yeah. He he loved to just get these positions that are unclear, but playable.
2: You know, sort, right.
0: of, sort of. And sometimes
2: your- easier to play, even if objectively worse, easier to play for himself.
0: Exactly. It's like, hey, I'm willing to try this out. Uh, okay, yeah, computer has me down 0.4. Who cares? You know, there's chances for both sides, and I'm comfortable with this position.
2: Right. Interesting. It's almost like the. The reintroduction of the human into the into the game, right? right? It
0: introduces that el- human element back into it. That's exactly right. You know, because again, it's a situation where, like I said, in the nineties, everybody thought we were working towards the perfect game, and that all games were going to be played this one way, and there was no way you could improve upon it. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's why. You know, again, I grew up with a lot of masters. I obviously became a master, and I see a lot of them dropped off in this time period. And I think that's part of it is that the game itself, the preparation, no longer we're we trying to find the perfect move or the perfect game. We're actually trying to find a playable game to outplay our opponents.
2: Right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really interesting take. I think. You know, I think you're right, especially as as a higher-rated player. That's what you want, right? You know, how many times do we hear the comment, commentator make a comment like, he just wants a game or he just wants to play chess? You know what I mean?
0: Well, now is the theory way back when is back in the 80s and 90s was, oh, I'm playing so-and-so, and they know the Sicilian 30 moves deep because right. they memorized this book. Well, I don't want to play a book. I want to play the person. Right. So instead of playing the Sicilian, I'm going to play the off-brand whatever just because he's not going to be as familiar with it because he hasn't memorized it thirty moves deep.
1: Sure,
0: you know. But nowadays, like I said, that's where it gets tricky. Is okay. So I play an off-brand thing. Well, you just go look it up online or look. You know, go home. Oh, Tim loves to play this variation.
2: Oh,
1: yeah. There's data. Knows.
2: There's data on the off-brand stuff. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, okay. Well, well, I can get a great game against them every time. And again, that's where I say, you know, the older players were faced with, okay, I got to relearn the game to be able right. to compete. And I don't want, you know, and some just made the decision, and I don't want to do that. And then, like I said, it was, which is unfortunate from my standpoint, because I think they bring so much to the game still.
2: So in, in your uh, four decades of, of U.S. chess rated play, and, and I have to say that's quite impressive. It's one of the reasons why I asked you to come on this month, uh, because our theme is tournament life. So in your four decades of tournament life, which was the most fun to play in? <laughs> was, was it the 90s when everyone was looking for the perfect game? Or is it today when it's sort of like al- almost a new, a new Wild West, but in a really weird like advanced computer way?
0: Um, oh, there, there's several aspects to that answer, which is um, that the question is, you know, the game is different, obviously, you know, again, I can I can even bring a computer into a tournament and win it just, you know, no one catches me. Obviously, I would not be doing that. Um, I, I think that. You know, Again, each each era, each time period had something special about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, to say that, oh my gosh, I yearn for the days of the eighties. <laughs> oh no, now,
2: no. I mean, hey, some I, some I really, very big, uh, big hair rock and roll bands probably would say, yeah,
1: out.
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, it's like no, I love the game as it is today. I love working with the students as of today. Sure. you know again it's you know when like I said in the 80s and 90s if I worked with someone I had to teach them opening now I just say oh go look online find an opening you like come back and I'll explain it to you you know and they come back and they know it pretty well just right. based on the videos and then I just have to fine-tune some things and say oh you are aware this is the idea of
2: this opening <laughs> oh now yeah, I'm, I'm impressed at the amount of content that is that is available. You know, not just video, but um, y- you can find whatever you want at your fingertips these days, as opposed to, you know...
0: Solves, and again, it's, yeah. you know, it's not a situation where, again, the fear of the 90s of it's going to be solved. Right. It's obviously not come true, and I don't see it coming true, because, again, I think people are realizing... As you stated earlier, there is a human element to the game. How do I find it? Right. Once I find that human element, then it's back to playing chess again.
2: I'm curious was that was that your approach to match play?
0: So, so yeah. Um, so there's several formats, and match play is still my favorite, if you will, only because the way it came about is it was right after I graduated from college in, in Peoria, Bradley University. Mm-hmm. And I got my master's rating while in college. So I had to, and I grew up in St. Louis. So all the St. Louis people were convinced that I only became a master because I played in Peoria. All the Peorians were convinced I was a master because I played in St. Louis. And it's like, wait, guys, I'm beating up on all of you guys. How, what? Huh? So I decided right after college that I would have a match tournament. So I invited a match seven,
2: tournament. Okay.
0: So I invited seven friends, and it was a six-game match with each round. So, and it was a. I, I can't. remember, I assume I did. I don't know how I did the seedings, but it was for this discussion. Say one plays
2: eight, two plays seven, three plays six, four plays five. Sure, sort of like a a, a mini NCAA bracket, if you will.
0: Yeah, it, yeah, it's a bracket format, and you know you played your opponent. And it was a six game match, and you could play it over a period of time. There was no, um, you know, time, you know, it didn't have to be played on weekends. It's whenever two players could get together. Sure. And my sole purpose of it was hey, you guys don't think I'm a master? Great. <laughs> I'll show you. Needless to say, I won it pretty convincingly.
2: And these were all other, other master players?
0: Um. I would put on um, A player expert range. Okay these, okay. these were the people that were clicking at my heels saying I wasn't that good.
1: Yeah. Well, you're not. Mas-
0: Masters then. knew I was
1: good. <laughs> right.
0: This was just me saying, okay, you think I'm so easy to beat? Right. Have at it. And I think the closest match was three and a half, one and a half, only because I gave up two quick draws at the end of the match.
2: Wow. I have to say, I, I can attest, I can attest to your to your skill. I, probably one of the single most impressive games I've ever seen anybody play, and I mean that's a pretty high compliment, of course. But in terms of seeing it happen live um, in the playing hall, was you remember this game? It was the Denver. What was the name of that? I think it was the Edward Levy Memorial in Denver. Yep. Yep. And if, am I remembering correctly? It was Wojtkiewicz you were playing. Bojo, is that right? Who was the GM where you had you had literally I came over and it was like move 30 of your game and you had every single piece you owned on the 8th rank um, on like the 30th move but you were like significantly better already am I remembering right that it was Woja? Uh,
0: Woja Cabot's game was interesting um, it was a back and forth game And, and he started pawn grabbing, Mm. I decided to attack his king and he didn't respect it and got mated, walked into a mate in (laughs) nine.
2: Just a casual mate in nine, no?
0: Yeah, it was just, it was, yeah, it was sort of funny. I mean, I saw it immediately and it was just funny watching his face just stare at it for 30 minutes going, huh, there's no way out. And the problem was the move before he had to admit the position was still equal and he was convinced he was better. So there was no way he was going to convince himself it was equal. And then, like I said, it was eight nine by
2: him playing on. So. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That was an interesting one. Yeah.
0: That, that was um, obviously one of many highlights I've had playing chess. Um, but yeah, I, I bought, I want to continue with the match. The Dutch, yes. Sorry. It, I derailed
2: us. So? I apologize.
0: No, no problem. It's just, So then I played three other matches. Now, those were against Masters, and I won all three of those, too. And what I found by match play, and like I said, the first, how it all came about was me just wanting to tweak some people's noses. But what I learned in that process is that it really allows you to focus, you know who you're going to play, you know what color you're going to have. Yeah. And you can prepare accordingly. You know what, you know, since these were friends, you know, you knew what, you know, openings they loved to play. You knew, you know, and you knew how you wanted to play against it, and they knew how you wanted to play against it. So it was a really, you know, it became a ch- challenge from that standpoint. And, then again, as I played the Masters in matches, you know, again, it was the same deal. We knew what each of us played. You know, several of them I played numerous times. But here it is, you know, Saturday, Wednesday, whatever days we decided to set the match on, we would play.
1: Yeah.
0: And, but it is challenging with match play for the points I just raised, is A, to find two people comparably rated. Right. And willing to give up time and expose themselves to the risk that they could lose. Right. You know, because, you know, again, you're playing another master or someone you're, I mean, it doesn't have to be two masters, it can be two people, same rating. And you even see it with the Super GMs playing is that, you know, if someone loses. Oh, they're not that good. <laughs> the super GM, yes, they are that good. It's that right. person just happened to play better for that period of time.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And so that's what led me to, you know, I, I had the taste of this in St. Louis. Um, in fact, one of my first, I don't know if it was exactly the first, but certainly one of the first, um, it, it was definitely my first D-Day event, but not the first Invitational I played in. And it was a 10-player round-robin event.
2: Okay. And when and would this have been?
0: This would have been 88, 87, 88 time frame. Okay. Sure. And so it was 10 players four FIDE-rated players and six non-FIDE-rated players. And the gist of it was if you scored plus one in the tournament and equal against the FIDE-rated players, you got a FIDE rating.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important to note that this was at a time when achieving a FIDE rating was far more difficult than it is today. Exactly. No, that was how you got your FIDE rating. It wasn't an open Swiss event you went to and they gave it to you. There was a minimum rating, I think it was 2,000, is that right? That sounds right, based on the players that we're in. So you couldn't even get a FIDE rating if, if you couldn't achieve a performance rating of at least 2,000. Nowadays, I think they'll FIDE rate all the way down to like 800, I think.
0: Exactly. It's like, show up,
2: give them money, they're happy. And, and additionally, um, a, apart from the minimum rating, there was also a minimum score, I think, too. Like it wasn't good enough, you know. You had to play X amount of games. I think it was four or five. Sounds like based on this event, maybe four was the minimum number of games. And against those FIDE opponents, I think you even had to score a point and a half. Is that is that? Sound you would have to right?
0: score even against the FIDE. Yeah, it's like I said, completely different because then now you just score a point against FIDE rated players, You rate your your game. You get a
1: rating, rated. Yeah. Right. Then
0: you had to score, even score against the FIDE rated players. And we had four players, so that means you had to score two points against FIDE rated players. Right. So the first round, I play a senior master and literally scorched him 28 moves. Very nice. So all of a sudden, now, whee! you know, because you go into the like, oh, yeah, whatever you know, these guys are good. I'm not, you know, maybe I'll do okay against them. Wait, I already got a point out of two I need. And the next round I play Michael Brooks
2: and... International master from Missouri, I
0: think? Correct, correct. At that time he was rated twenty five seventy five, And he sacks a piece on F2 against me to break open my king. I run my king all the way to B1. And Maintain up the piece. Everybody thought I should have won the game, but after talking to Brooks afterwards, he said no, it was probably equal mm. throughout. Because we got into a, a promising and pond ending, and at that time I wasn't as good at and pond ending as I am today. So, but he drew. So I, all of a sudden I'm at one and a half points, and I still have two games against to go against p day rated players, only needing a draw. And then I just got to score plus one against the rest of the field. Right. And so the next round, uh, I played an A player expert, low, I mean, he was right there, low expert. And, you know, he was thinking, oh, you know, this is a fun event, who cares? Then he heard my first two results, and he's like, oh, you're coming to win, aren't you? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So I win that game in in a pretty nice fashion. Uh, I sacked a piece that he couldn't take, but he did. So it was made in four
2: after that. So this was also the a FIDE rated opponent. So you basically got your rating secured. Is that right? No, he was not FIDE rated. Oh, okay. Okay. That was
0: just, that got me my plus one. And so now
1: sure.
0: I got Doug Eckert to go. And FIDE
1: master, yeah.
0: FIDE master, Doug Eckert. I, yeah, I'm certain he was a FIDE master at that time. And Ken Jones, another master from Missouri. Okay. So Doug does beat me but I, I maintained my plus one throughout the event for the last round. I'm paired against Ken Jones. Now I, I no longer remember the wise, you know, but the, we played off site for the last round. So Ken from Kansas city was staying with Doug Eckert in St. Louis. Okay. So we agreed to play. My guess it was that Monday we played at his house. And so we're playing in a basement. And again, I know, we all know what this means.
2: <laughs> this is this is tournament life in in the U.S. Like honestly, you know, you play FIDE rated serious events in somebody's basement. <laughs> right. Exactly. You're,
0: you're, you're playing for. It's a like a perfect
2: life. microcosm of, of <laughs> United States chess. Honestly.
0: Exactly. So we're maybe on move fifteen or so, and Doug comes down and goes, "Hey guys, dinner's ready. You want to eat?" <laughs> So Ken Jones Uh, says, yeah, I'm hungry. I'll offer you a draw. Of course, I'm just elated. It's like, you're kidding me. I get a draw? Sure. I get a P-Day rating? Like (laughs) you mentioned earlier, this is a big deal. Because I'm hungry. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's great. My is hungry. So anyway, so I'm I'm all excited about this. A few weeks go by, and then I'm told the news that I don't get a P-Day rating from it. And I'm like, wait. I thought I'd met all the conditions. Yeah, you did. But when it got submitted to FIDE, it was submitted as as a Swiss tournament, not as a round robin. Oh, no. So somebody messed it up? or Uh, Again, these are pre-internet days. So you're on the phone calling and trying to figure out, and you don't know who's looking at what or anything. Right. But... And again, even though I didn't get a A rating from him, even though I'd earned it, the experience showed me again, you know, hey, we come together to play. We're competitive, but we're cheering for each other, too. I mean, I doubt Ken Jong would give me a draw if it wasn't for, you know, just because he was hungry. He knew it meant <laughs> a lot to me.
2: Was that uh, that that might be the world's first ever, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> dinner draw, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, if we it uh,
2: would have been easy to plan yeah. that out, but it was someone else's house. Like, I these, mean, I've heard of a snowstorm draw. You know, like, the, <laughs> the weather's starting to look pretty bad outside, you know? It's the final right. round, we were both okay with the draw, <laughs> you know, you... You shake hands and you get home before the um before the roads are closed. But I've never I don't think I've ever heard of a of a dinner draw before.
0: I <laughs> know how to schedule them.
2: Alright, I'm gonna test your memory here. So what I mean, what was for dinner? Spaghetti <laughs> I knew you'd remember that. There's no way you can't there's no way you'd forget the, the Oh yeah, you know round. the whole
0: story. It's like yeah. dog comes down, hey guys, dinner's ready. Hey, what's for dinner? Oh, spaghetti. Ah, oh, wow. I'm so hungry. Do you have meatballs with that? Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah,
2: you want to oh I get a PA rating? Yes. Dinner? Yeah. I don't care. I got a PA rating. Right. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. That really is. I mean, that really is just like, you know, you want to talk about tournament life in the U.S. There you go. You just listen to that story, and that gives you a perfect idea of what playing chess in the United States was like for a very long time, I think.
0: Oh, it definitely was. Um, and even probably till the early 2000s, it still had that. Um, trying to get a FIDE rating was like a, a mystery that required you to read six old scrolls. <laughs> you know, who knows what. And only Great. to find out that that was out of date, that they replaced it six late months later with something completely different.
2: Yeah, you know, additionally, the opportunities to get one were very few and far between.
0: And that was when you brought up the uh, Denver Open. That was the whole reason we went there, is we saw it was A rated. Right. And we're like, oh, yeah, you know, we wanted to work on our A rating. That'd be a great place to go. Right. And then we chose to play in the two-day option for traveling reasons, and then learned after the fact that my win against Wojcikowicz, while counted for USCF, did not count for FIDE because that was game 70.
2: Right. It was part of the two-day, not part of the the longer right. time control. Yeah. Day did
0: not rate that fast time control. And it's like, you know, and I we didn't find that out until we got back and we were like, wait, why didn't this show up on FIDE? And then, you, you know, a few emails now. Uh, you guys did this to me in 89. What are you doing to me now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then that's what led to okay, and again, that's when we started to learn the rules on getting a FIDE rating. And it's like, hey, we can hold, you know, we have, you know, several strong players, Iowa, Illinois. Why don't we, you know, work on getting some of our younger players a FIDE rating? Because that gives them the possibility to be invited to some major events,
1: right? Yeah,
0: you know, and then we had uh, Frank and Jim Barry in Oklahoma. They were starting to hold more FIDE events. You know, trying, you know, again with the same purpose is, you know, to get invited to the major invitationals. You had to have a higher, you had to have a FIDE rating to begin with. You know, they didn't look at USCF as much. Right.
2: Right. The FIDE rating was what was what mattered,
0: right? And so that's when we started. You know, then there was a push, and you know, here in Ames, we had the late Roger gasho helping me put on some FIDE events. You know, right now, Rock- as
2: I remember, these were called the FIDE Futurities, and and really, there was no prize fund. Um, was there? I think there was an entry fee. Uh, The way
0: it was worked is that we had a $50 entry fee and we asked players to pay $100 with $50 to be returned at the end of the event. It was imperative that, you know, if you signed up for these events, that you played the whole event. You know, because especially the early ones, we would have the bare minimum of FIDE-rated players um, that was required to be FIDE-rated and then we would, you know, and then fill it in with everybody else. Um, and we were very successful in getting a lot of, you know, Iowans their P-Day ratings through that. Right. And, you know, and again, um, we had a student or a player come through Iowa who played in Iowa, lived in Iowa, now moved on to Illinois, but he got invited to an international event just based on his P-Day rating. So if we don't go through that, if we hadn't gone through the effort to hold those events in the early 2000s, hit the PA rated for the players, he wouldn't have qualified for it. Right. A lot of work and effort that has to go in for these things.
2: You know, at that time as well, and, and just to sort of center the listeners here, this was the early 2000s. And at that time, there some of the harsher requirements for getting the rating were still in place, you know, in terms of minimum rating. Um, I also remember that the number of games played per event requirement was still in place. So, for example, you know, you could make an attempt to get a FIDE rating by going and playing in something like the Governor's Cup, which was a tournament that was uh, very fun to play and no longer exists. I think the Governor's Cup was six rounds. Does that sound right, Tim? That, that sounds right, yes. But if you didn't play four FIDE opponents during those six rounds, that whole tournament would not count for you, you know? So you could go there with the intention of attempting to get a FIDE rating, and if you didn't. Phase four opponents who had one, well, you know, your voyage was for naught, basically. So having these invitational events was um, a big boon, let's say, because you knew going to that event, I'm going to get the number of games I need to try to get this done.
0: That, that's correct, and, and again, that's what was the selling point, right? Was, um, and again, we would have strong players in these events, so the games were competitive. Um, I don't remember offhand what the highest out of eight rounds, what the top score was, but I know it wasn't perfect. You know, there there were battles each round, you know, it was good competition.
2: I think I had, I think one of the events you hosted, I had a six out of seven. We had eight players, so seven rounds. I think that was the best score I ever had in one of those. There were definitely no undefeated, that's for sure.
0: Right, no one went undefeated. Six sounds, comfortably, would be the best. But, yeah, no, and, again, that was what was the draw of it. Is, and, again, if you go back to my analogy with the match, you know, we knew the pairings in advance. They were mm-hmm. to the players minimum two weeks in advance. You knew what color you had. Right. And for the most part, everybody was in the Midwest, so you knew the players, so you knew what to expect. Right. And so that allowed you versus a Swiss tournament where you play who knows what you're going to face. You had a good feeling for what openings you were going to see at that tournament. You knew what their quote pet lines were. And if you wanted to test yourself against those pet lines, you certainly could. You right. Could if you had a way to avoid it, that looked sound. You could do that as well. Um. And it, like I said, it's just a great way of training yourself and learning. And I do think that overall you go through it, regardless how you do in the event itself, you go through an event like that. If you have a weakness in your game, it's clearing and you see it. Yeah, that's true. And if you have a strength in your game, it stands out. Also true. Yeah. And And that was, I remember the first one I played in, uh, certainly one of the first invitational events I played in in Missouri. You know, I left. I I had winning positions or better positions against several experts and masters and lost them all. Finished near the bottom of the pack. And I was so mad because I had such good positions and threw them away. That didn't make me a bad player. That just told me, hey, you can compete with these guys. Okay, you get sloppy in the late middle game. You get sloppy in the end game. Work on those parts. Sure. And that's what I would focus on. It's like, okay, that was where I was losing it against strong competition. Now I know what I need to work on. Right. Whereas whereas a Swiss event, sort of random who you get, when you get them, how they're doing, what they're doing, what the tournament standings are. So you may get away with more in a Swiss event versus you're not going to get away as much in a match because, again,
2: if I see you... Know, problems, go ahead. No, I was just going to say you're absolutely right. I, I think that has such a predominant influence or maybe just dominant, I don't need the pre there, on American chess because, you know, Swiss Swiss tournaments are the vast majority of what you're going to play. You know, occasionally you'll find some clubs that run a quad. But the large, like the extreme majority of events you can play in the U.S. right now, well, or rather, you know, when when COVID isn't going on, are Swiss tournaments, and it's a completely different mindset and approach to a Swiss than around Robin.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and the, I, I I had to laugh as I was listening to one of the uh, broadcasts, and Yasu Sarawan was talking to uh, Peter Leko.
2: Yes. I remember this exact interview. Yes. Uh-huh. And, it,
0: you know, the answer goes, I, I don't remember what specific opening. Oh, I, I think it was the Carol Kahn. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I could be dead wrong in the opening, but I'll use Carol Khan as an example. And he goes, yeah, Carol Kahn is very popular in the U.S. because it gives you a fighting position to play for a win. And Peter Lako's like, uh, yeah, but it's, it's just doesn't appeal to me because I play solid chess. I play for perfection, and the Carol Kahn is not that good. <laughs> yeah, you know, and again, I could be wrong on these specific openings, but the specific opening, but the topic was, you know, and that's what and P- Peter said that's why he doesn't play anymore because the only thing he can play in is in Swiss events, and his style and his learning and preparation is not geared for a Swiss event, whereas most Americans, it is.
2: Right. Actually, so that's that's the part of the interview I thought you were referencing was when Leco basically said, look, I stopped playing because I can't play round robins anymore. You know, the category 16, 17, 18, um, they're not happening and his style is not suited to doing well in a Swiss. Yeah. I, I, I remember that very clearly. I thought it was a really fascinating interview to think about, you know, the parts of the world where um, I don't want to call them like a grandmaster factory, but, you know, essentially that's kind of what it is, where, where they're producing um, a large number of grandmasters and very strong players. And they're doing it in a very different environment than, than we do here in the United States. You know, they're doing it with round robins and invitational events, Correct. as opposed to, you know, like the World Open and Chicago Open and that sort of thing. Right, yeah. Here,
0: driven by big money tournaments, which right. makes sense. I mean. But yeah, it's, like I said, just a different environment. And,
2: but yeah, that's, it's a that's, different tournament life. If I can go ahead and plug the the theme of the season again, right? I mean, it's a completely different tournament life. And it's not that you that you're not producing grandmasters here. You can't, but it's a very different um, approach or way that it's happening. Uh, now, that's not that you know that's a that's a huge generalization. That's not to say that there aren't invitationals and there aren't that sort of round robin tournament. I know. There are some I, I think we're, we're
0: seeing that. more today. Today being the last four or five years, than we saw in probably from mid '90s to 2005.
2: Yeah. Oh, any time in our lifetime, I would say. Um, honestly, I mean, or at least in mine, um, there's the past four to five years. There's been an exponential growth of these type of events. Exactly. Compared to you know any time previously, in, in, at least in my chess playing experience.
0: Right. No, most of the invitations prior to that were for the GM, the top players. Right. And it was like, which, good, they, you know, they burned it, whatever, but you're really missing out, you know, from a learning experience, training experience for the average player. Right. Because I would venture, and I'm sure someone would object, but that most masters probably put in time comparable to the GM, maybe not as much per se, but certainly comparable time that, you know, it's not like, you know, they're just showing up to tournaments. They had to put in maybe three, four hours a day, some more every day for a long period of time to get that knowledge and just to throw it in the randomness of a Swiss. You know, it's like, oh, that's what I worked for? Well, yeah, that's what you built your whole career on. And so that's what I, you know, when I see these round-robin events, I really, you know, try to support them, encourage them, because I do think they're, you know, great learning experiences. And I do think most, if not all, the experts and masters that played in this event in my futurities, and played in the uh, Coleus event in Chicago – and I know Savan had some, um, I'll call them lower level non IMGM events.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. Savan think- Meridian organizer from Chicago, uh, the late Savan Meridian.
0: Correct. So, and I, you know, I think that's when you know we got a, a, a awakening that hey, wait, there's some players out here that are willing to give up an extra few days to play in these events. Right. In some cases, pay some extra money to make these events happen, right? Because, as you alluded to earlier, it's still difficult to get an IM or a GM norm.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Especially if you live in a non, you know, major area of the country. Right. If you live on the East Coast, West Coast, or in Chicago area. Maybe it's not, you know, the players are there. It's somewhat easier to do, but. Anywhere else in a country, it's nearly impossible to get people to play to be able to yeah. get
2: IM and GM norm, or even just to have a, a large enough a large enough player base to draw from to host such an event. You know, that's right. I think that's a difficult that's a difficult challenge to some of the the middle states. I guess we could call them
0: <laughs> right. No, I think that, right. There's there's several states that fit that category. That's why I wanted to avoid using midwest because it's like well no it's just not the midwest there's right there's several pockets in this whole country that just don't have access to it you know and even when we traveled the country you know in the early 2000s i mean to stay 3 nights that's 400 500 bucks
2: yeah entry fees and it certainly hasn't gotten any cheaper
0: right entry fees 100 200 bucks a person and while there's a listed, posted prize of $2,000, you know a GM's getting that. You're not in the running for that. You're competing for 300 bucks.
2: Yeah, it's and a big investment.
0: So you're having to put out a lot of money knowing you're not going to get a return on it, but just to have that opportunity to play stronger players right? and have that opportunity maybe to get to invited to a stronger event because people see you and say, hey, wait. Yeah, you know, he, he's actually very good. You know, we need to get him to show up to some. You know, he'd be a great addition. Because I think you played. Uh, and again, I know there's pockets of people doing this. I think he played in an uh, invitational in Kentucky.
2: Yeah, so that was an interesting event. It was another fascinating example, honestly, of tournament life in the United States because it was played in the. I guess it was a a warehouse room at a lumber mill. So, uh, or a a woodworking mill. Um, It was actually, I mean, I'm making it sound like we were playing, you know, like with machinery (laughs) on the ground. That's not the case. It was pretty nice. I I don't know if it was considered a showroom or what, but it was all wood floors, very nicely designed um, just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. But the organizer of the event and there were, there were two, I believe, let me think about this. I think there were two separate round robins going on at the same time. The average rating in my round robin was a little over 2,300, if I remember correctly, which was right about my rating at the time. Um, and the other one was a little bit lower rated than that, but not much. And it was held essentially, you know, the organizer just kind of worked there and was able to get the room and boom, there you go. Prior to that, he had been regularly hosting um, these tournaments and I I can't remember what he called them. I think it was the two tables invitational or something like that in a room in his house. So, you know, he would invite the strongest players from Kentucky to a room in his house to come and play um, uh, a competitive lengthy master invitational over, over a weekend. So yeah, I mean you're right. It's 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 interesting how they crop up and how they come about, and and very often not just how but also where they are played.
0: Yeah, because you, you you know you, you hit upon it. The guy had a free place to pay, play,
1: right?
2: That,
0: that made it affordable for him to do it.
2: Right. Yeah. You can't you can't rent a ballroom when you've only got twelve players. You know, it's, it doesn't work. It just right.
0: Are you are charging excessive fees that no one's going to pay?
1: Right.
0: And that's when I always hear, the, well, you need to get sponsors. And I just sit there laughing going, okay, <laughs> just players are known to be cheap. Who's going to yeah. sponsor us knowing they're getting nothing
2: out of it? Right. And, and not only that, but it's not, it's not like a, you know, they're not top level. They're not players with endorsements or companies behind them. You know, they're just, most of them just average people who, who treat the game as a hobby, even though they may be fairly good at it. Um, you know, uh, it's, they're not professionals and it's a different level of, there was a time when even professional players struggled to get sponsorship. You know, I mean, fortunately it's, it's lovely to see that that's changing now, um, with some of our modern, modern players. Uh, but it's, it's difficult and it's different. You know, I remember Tim in the intro, I mentioned you were four-time Iowa champion That's around Robin, too. And we talked about that with our last guest, Jim Medina, and the one before him, Bill Broyke. But I remember one year that was held. You might remember this. It was like a corner office in Marshalltown. You remember that? Yeah. Like a second floor. I mean, we were crammed into this. uh, I don't even know if office is the right way to describe it.
0: If Um, you think of the old Main Street, an abandoned building on an old Main Street, That's where we played.
2: Yeah. Abandoned building on old Main Street, USA. right? Central Iowa, Main Street, USA.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that describes it perfectly. And everybody can be able to place it
2: because, oh, yeah, I know that place. It's right down the street from me. Right. Right. Yeah. Old brick building, abandoned Main Street. Yeah. And we were crammed into this room on the second floor. And that's where literally the state championship of Iowa took place. Yep. I remember the only the only place nearby that was open to get food was was like a Casey's General Store, you know. Right. Unless right. you were willing to take a bit of a drive, you were stuck stuck on gas station food for the weekend.
0: Right. No, that that's the challenge. Is you know we, we want everything, you know, all these accommodations, but it comes at a huge cost that defeats the whole purpose of playing because you can't recoup the money.
2: Right. Truly a labor of love, you know, I mean, I think that's what it comes down to is, you know, how, how much do I love the game where I'm willing to invest, you know, and this is again, outside of major markets where, you know, New York, you can, you can take the, take the subway back home every night. Right. Right. Um, So outside of major markets with easy access to a large number of tournaments, it's, it's really a labor of love. Yeah. Or as I called it in, in my in my 2016 Chess Life article, the struggle, right? It's a struggle.
0: Well, I, I think your your previous statement is correct. Is you go into playing chess and you choose to play in tournaments, you know what you signed up for. Yeah. And you say, okay, this is, you know, I know this is the way it's going to be. I can't go into it expecting any different because it hasn't been different for, you know, I can tell you for 40 years, it's the same issues that, you know, tournament organizers have been facing and there is no, you know, again, we can find someone who works at a place that has a building that we can rent out real cheaply free. You know, but if you got to start contacting the local hotels, meeting rooms, that's $300 a day that you're out. And that's got right. to come from somewhere.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's where, again, that's why I sort of like the matches in the tournament, at the round robin events. It's usually you can find, you know, decent places relatively cheap because you only have a few people you have to accommodate.
1: Right. And again, that's
0: always easier said than done because, again, yeah, you know, if you don't have that luxury and you don't have that option,
2: right? Exactly. You know, and then and then sometimes in those cases the event just doesn't happen. You know, you don't you don't have the tournament, which is which is unfortunate. So Tim, uh, catch us up a little bit on on what you're doing these days. I know you just last night, if I'm not mistaken, um, participated in the States Cup, which is going on right now.
0: So State Cup has been an interesting. Um, uh, exercise, I guess I, I don't know. Tournament format, probably a better term, is um, you know with the COVID we can't go play, and so you know the idea came about. Hey, why don't we have states compete each, against each other using the format of the amateur team event, meaning the average rating under twenty two hundred.
1: Right.
0: And so Iowa embraced that idea. Now we have like six to eight masters in, in the state. And we're like, hey, you know, we have several that are looking for games and play, and so so we put together a team. And so far each week our average rating has been probably, very, probably 2190, 2180, 2190. So we're going to be competitive, you know, each week, which we have been. We've won our first three games, our three matches. And then last night we played Colorado and they fielded a team average rating that range 2180, 2190. So we knew it was going to be a tough match. Right. Going in the last round, we were down. uh, The format is such. Everybody plays everybody on the other team. Okay. So, and it starts off with your first board playing their fourth board. And then he just walks up the line. And then obviously everybody else plays who's ever remaining. So in the last round, you got your two first boards playing each other, two second boards playing each other, two third boards playing each other and two fourth boards playing each other.
2: Okay. So that's nice that that happens in the final round.
0: Yeah. So theoretically you're playing your equal in that last round. Right. So this should be the toughest math game for that reason. I mean, it's no longer, you know, there's no rating deficit or, anything with it. So we went into that round down five and a half, six and a half. Um, and my opponent decided to give me a free piece on move 20-ish or so, which I, I, I took, and collected a point soon thereafter. So now we're knotted up at six and a half. And then our board uh, one and three had exciting games and ended up winning there, and so all of a sudden we won. You know, had turned it completely around, right? You know, and so we're up. We win the match. The last <laughs> comeback. Yeah, it was a nice comeback, and and we met afterwards. We get on uh, Facebook uh, chat page and just and I think we spent the first half hour just like <laughs> we actually won. Did we? Did we? win? So it was pretty exciting. Nice, very and cool. So we're gearing up for next week where we play Illinois, who's also three and zero. So that's we're, we're we're thinking that could be a very good match.
2: So yeah. you guys and are the sure two to- the two states right next to each other, of course, as well.
0: Yeah, there's 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 the natural rivalry being next to each other, and then the fact that everybody hates Chicago.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe I don't know. I think it's probably too late, but maybe I'll try to hop into our, our team and see if I can face off against Iowa.
0: So the, the match is next Thursday
2: mm-hmm.
0: at eight o'clock uh, eight o'clock central time.
2: Very nice. And also I understand uh each match sort of as part of the format here is streamed, right? Each team provides a screamer commentator for that week.
0: There will be a streamer. It's usually the home team that provides the streamer. Um, okay. it, I know I've streamed one time when we were visiting, just still trying to work out the kinks. I wanted to drive you nuts for a little bit with questions. And um, But I think next week, Illinois is doing the streaming. I don't know if, if I will have their own streamer. Um, I do not know where that's publicly listed, though. Uh, if any of your viewers would like to follow it. Uh, Pete, do you know if there's any place where that's listed?
2: You know, I know that 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 there is a you can go on USjust.org and there's a link to information about the States Cup. Um, and I believe once you find that information, there is a discord for the States Cup, which is organized in different channels and one of those should also have the the streaming information available. So if you're interested in checking it out, uh you can visit our homepage, uschess.org, uh search for States Cup, you'll find that info there. And it should take you ultimately, you'll have to do a little bit of navigating, but it will ultimately take you to where you need to go um to find that.
0: And the games are played on Lee Chess. Right. Um which is I mean I, I find most of these sites to be very good and that one was easy to navigate last night. And I found, you know, using it to stream through has been very easy as well. Um, what's nice about it, again, you know, sort of what we were alluding to before, is that, you know, average rating is under 2,200. Right. So these are players that love the game. You know, you're not. You're going to see mistakes. You know, so don't go expecting to see perfect chess. I mean, last night I was down, according to the computer, 23 point something or other, and yet one.
2: <laughs> and that, that still corrects me up.
0: And unfortunately, Pete can tell you many examples of me doing that. So, yeah, Mr. Hodina was trying to say, was that the biggest comeback you ever had? And I go, oh, no. Oh, no. It's most recent, yes, but that was only because it happened an hour ago. But no. I have a long history of winning from lost positions yeah as
2: as previous podcast guest Brian Wall once said if I couldn't win a lost position, I wouldn't be a chess master
0: <laughs> so yes, but yeah it's a fun and again I think the teams uh, Colorado had several te- uh, team members following last night. Iowa's starting to build up a group I know Illinois has a large group right. And so, it's, this is the first year, it's an inaugural year. We're still learning all the ins and outs of it. I think streaming was an excellent idea for it. Um, but if, yeah, each week if we can add a few more. I think uh, Mr. Houdina said he had like 23 people listening in on the stream last night. So
1: Very nice. Yeah.
0: You know, and there's, you got a chat that you can you know, give your thoughts on and how the position's going and can Tim get a worse position than this. Oh yeah!
2: Wait, <laughs> I'm sad I missed it. I, you know, I watched the the previous week. I'll have to go back and catch the replay of, of last night's states. I game. gotta
0: see my third round game too. If you have a chance,
2: okay, very I, nice.
0: I was getting mated, mm-hmm. and the, if the rook ever makes it to the first rank, it's mate. But okay. I was successful in keeping his rook on his own for eighth rank.
1: Oh, and, okay. And so I
0: decided to push for a win and forgot that I couldn't allow his rook out. Oops, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is one of the more fascinating positions you ever see. As Jim said in his uh, uh, streaming, is that that look could make it out. I'm mated. I can't get out of the
1: mate. Right, I'm
0: using my bishop and knight and look to keep his look out of the game, and chasing his king on the second and third rank.
2: Yeah, I, I was going to ask. You said it's only the home team that provides provides the scream. Uh, do you know if any of the players actually stream while they're playing? I know sometimes, like, the National Blitz League, we'll see even the players, you know, make their own commentary. Well, yeah, is that
0: the players not? themselves are discouraged from doing that. Okay. I okay. can't say none of them are doing it. It's possible someone's doing it, but sure. uh, the idea of the streaming, again, is to generate interest. And so if I'm busy focusing on playing a game and you chat something, well, obviously, i got to be careful what you chat.
2: That's true, yeah. It's not like it's, there's a filter. Yeah,
0: yeah so there, it's really – I don't think they can stream for that reason because it would be too easy. And, again, <clears throat> this is first year. We're learning a lot of things as we go through it, and we're going to continue to learn things through it as we go through the season. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I don't think it – I don't think they allow the players themselves to stream if I remember the rules correctly. But yeah, the idea—the idea is to try to be interactive. So yeah, if you have—and again, these are I would say a player, expert, masters playing. You know, so if you want to see someone, maybe not the super GM level, and what they go through to play, it's an excellent opportunity. And like I said, I've streamed the first two weeks, and I know there's been a few other masters that stream. that it's a great opportunity to say hey why are they playing that way or what are they looking at or what are they doing you can get it at a better level than you would watching the super gm where you just go oh that's what the computer said
2: they played it uh i don't get it right right well tim i i really appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience you know all the way from a spaghetti dinner basement (laughs) spaghetti (laughs) i would basement spaghetti dinner maybe is the best way to, to <laughs> order those words uh, all the way up through you know um i mean literally you know streaming live streaming uh games you know that's quite quite the tournament life quite the chess experience you've had when when you consider you know all of the changes that you've seen just in just in the time you've been playing u.s u.s rated u.s chess rated events um so thank you for coming on and sharing some of that well, thank experience. Thank you
0: for with us. having me. And yeah, it's been a great experience. It's been a great forty years.
2: Forty years next February. In,
0: yeah, in February. Unfortunately it will not be <laughs> another forty years,
2: but hey. You know, hey, you never know. You never know. Technology <laughs> is is moving. <laughs> it's
1: vastly uh, improvement. Time. <laughs>
2: And we we in fact know some players who you know the, uh, i believe both uh, andrew karklins and his father uh probably played a very very long time behind. right like right. oh yeah it's still possible yeah it's possible <clears throat> if, if it happens we'll definitely have to bring you back on the podcast 20, <laughs> 20, well, 2061 yeah 2061 hello? <laughs> hello i don't even know what episode number that would be you know uh, <laughs> but uh, i put yeah, myself
0: that, in for that now
2: yeah can i go ahead and add you to the calendar Is that all right? <laughs> but thank you very much tim it's it's been a real pleasure I'm a i look forward to uh speaking with you again soon
0: sounds good thanks for having me
2: thank you for listening to the chess underground a u.s chess podcast Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday and include Ladies Night with Jim Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lewis. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com for consulting, production and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Carianos.